This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by LifeWay, publisher of Jen Wilkins' newest Bible study, God of Deliverance, a study of Exodus 1-18. through 18. Throughout 10 sessions, Wilkins shows us that Israel's story is our story. The same God who delivered Israel also delivers all those He loves from slavery to sin and from service to the pharaohs of this world. Learn more at LifeWay.com Deliverance. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear a message from Ray Ortland on renewal for tired pastors. This message was originally delivered at TGC's 2019 National Conference. Our topic is, Pastor, you and your church can get healthy again. What is a healthy church? There's more than one good way to define that. We think, of course, of the nine marks of a healthy church, which are really helping many churches today. But an internet search would give us many insights into defining a healthy church. The one thing we all want to do is hold ourselves responsible not to define church health in terms of our own personally desirable criteria. We don't grow by reinforcing what we already understand. The Christian race is not running laps. It's cross-country, and we're running new terrain all the way. The Bible calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And how can we be renewed unless we're open to what is new? So we get more healthy by stretching ourselves in new directions according to Scripture. One significant reason we in our churches drift into unhealth is that we neglect or underemphasize or even turn away from aspects of Christ himself that we find confusing or threatening. That's the main thing I want to say today. We get healthy again when we stop miniaturizing Christ and rediscover his actual grandeur, and we allow him in our churches to be all that, in fact, he is. That's our problem, I know, in the South. I serve in Nashville. I live in a part of the country that still doesn't mind God talk doesn't even mind Jesus' talk. But what Jesus are we talking about? There is a bobblehead mascot, Jesus Jr. 
There is also a multifaceted industrial strength, Jesus of the Bible. This past Sunday at Emmanuel, we sang, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation, with the line, He is your health and salvation. And if that is so, and it is, then there is no mechanical or merely organizational or technical secret to church health. Ultimately, we in our churches have to deal with Christ himself, the Almighty, the King of creation. The overall goal of gospel ministry, as Paul states it, is, this is amazing, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4. He heaps terms upon terms. What church of any denomination among us here today has attained that? What church, when you look at it closely, makes you think, I see in that church nothing less than the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The grandeur of Paul's language, his largeness of vision, his majestic categories of thought sweep us up from all small and petty and merely denominational and currently popular categories of consideration. His vision for every church whispers to us all that there is more to Christ than we have yet apprehended. Admitting it humbles us. It lifts our standards from mere success, whatever that is, to a glory from above coming upon our churches, coming upon us, a glory that will compel the attention of our bored and exhausted generation. I believe that health for us pastors in our churches awaits us in those very regions of Christ, if I may put it that way, that we have not deeply visited, but which, which right now lie open to us all by his grace according to Scripture. Scripture is the roadmap into more of the glory of Christ. So unhealthy churches, unhealthy pastors stay unhealthy because they keep going back over truths and insights and understandings about Christ that they've already established. But there is more to him, and we need more of him. And we don't flourish in health and strength by limiting ourselves to the familiar Christ we already understand. We grow and thrive by daring to press into more of the Christ that we don't yet understand, which requires honesty and openness. I think of the Bible as something like the medicine cabinet in our bathrooms at home. With the mirror there and the door, we open it up, and there are shelves, and on the shelves are various remedies for various ailments. We have Tums for our stomachs, Unisom for sleep, aspirin for headaches, and so forth. The pages of the Bible are like that. Every passage is a prescription from the divine physician for some human sickness and suffering. But when you have a headache, just devouring more and more Tums won't get you healthy and might injure your health. Health is taking in all that Christ is for all that we need. One of the men coming in reminded me about something my dad said on his dying day. This is very poignant and compelling to me. 
Jenny and I were over in Ireland. Dad was at Hogue Memorial Hospital in Newport Beach, California. He woke up that morning. I don't know how he knew, but he knew that was his day of release. So he had the nurse call the family in. They gathered around his bed. He gave a message to each one of us. And because we were far away, he said, they said, what do you want us to tell Bud? And Dad said, tell Bud, ministry isn't everything. Christ is. That'd make a good tattoo. So here's my approach today to our question about pastoral and church health. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul explains why he rejoices over that church. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That's a fascinating thing to say about a church. It shows us what kind of church made an apostle rejoice. What kind of church made an apostle who couldn't be there to hold their hands? What helped him not to worry about them, but to rejoice over them? What kind of church made the apostle Paul cheerfully confident? A church that was marked by two glorious powers, which in combination might seem to oppose each other, but which in reality complement each other. Good order, and firmness of faith. So let's think about those two glories for just a moment, good order and firmness of faith, which when combined are just one indicator of church health. Good order is all about organization, alignment, definitions, standards, procedures, clarity, as opposed to scatteredness and confusion. Firmness of faith, on the other hand, is all about conviction and intensity and energy, enthusiasm, expectancy, discovery, as opposed to lethargy and indecision. Both powers, when they aren't competing, but combining evidence church health. So let's think further about what each one means. First, that word translated good order is toxis meaning arrangement, position, or order. It was used in secular Greek to describe how a society was organized. It was used of an army in secular Greek, of an army marching forward rank upon rank as opposed to a mob straggling along in chaos. So we get our modern word tactics from this Greek word. So good order is a church that defines terms, it makes distinctions, it keeps things in line, it cares about standards and planning and org charts and the flow of information. Good order is a church embracing mutual submission so that the body moves forward together, informed, united. Healthy churches don't do sloppy. Then, the word translated firmness in firmness of faith, that is stereoma, meaning solidity, strength, steadfastness, vigor. It was used in the Septuagint of the force or strength of an army on the field of battle. Our modern word steroids is traceable back to this Greek root. So 
we can allow ourselves to say, this isn't how you establish a meaning, but it's how you can illustrate a meaning. We can say that firmness of faith is faith on steroids. Faith of a very decided character. Faith energized by strong convictions. This is a faith that is decisive and appropriately, gently demanding of itself. It's going somewhere. Brian Edwards, in his wonderful book on revival, describes the churches God has used for revival this way. They knew what they wanted, and they were determined to get it. That is firmness of faith. Healthy churches don't do wishy-washy. When Paul saw that good order and that firmness of faith in the Colossian church, it drew from him joyous admiration. But in our own natural bent, each of us can be predisposed in favor of either good order or firmness of faith. Each of us can be biased one way or the other. Some of us naturally geek out on procedures and policies and minute definitions. Others of us naturally exude warmth and enthusiasm and passionate restlessness. That's my bias. Indeed, whole denominations can stand out one way or the other. Some churches are clearly ordered, and other churches are obviously energetic. But in ourselves, we and our churches tend to veer off into an unhealthy one-sidedness. Some churches are held back by their overwritten and tedious structures. And other churches stumble over themselves because of their undiscerning enthusiasm. But the kind of church that made an apostle happy did not allow itself a one-sided either-or, but held together God's wise both-and, both good order and firmness of faith with equal emphasis and equal obviousness simultaneously. Only a healthy church reaches that surprising fullness and grandeur because it's from Christ. The Christian faith, as we all know, is marked throughout by profound dichotomies. Not contradictions, but differences, paradoxes, and incongruities that set Christianity apart as more complex and profound than a man-made religion. For example, both truth and experience, both mercy and judgment, both divine sovereignty and human responsibility, both law and grace, both gospel preaching and social justice, both justification and sanctification, both rest and exertion, both restrained self-awareness and boisterous joy, both earth and heaven, both the physical and the spiritual, and so forth. We could go on at length. Real Christianity is bigger and fuller than every one of us and all of us put together. It's as big as Christ. We are simplistic and small, which is where unhealth creeps in. We lose our robust health whenever we turn God's both end into our own either or. But we can fail to see it because our preferred part of Christ's fullness is right. Emphasizing gospel preaching, for example, is right. 
But without the complementary glory of social justice, we can feel more complete and more healthy than we really are. A half-right church can be oblivious to the fact that it is also half-wrong. Because it really is right insofar as it is right. But an incomplete one-sided right is not our standard of health. Our standard is the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Which means all of us are partly wrong in the very areas where we are partly right and we are partly unhealthy in the very areas where we are partly healthy. Well, rats. <laughs> Which is why God has given pastors to his people. So I'm making the case that the completeness, not the collision, but the completeness of both good order and firmness of faith in Colossians 2.5 is just one example of the comprehensive biblical fullness that marks healthy churches and healthy pastors. But if we turn God's multi-course feast, which he wants us to devour fully, into our own self-invented menu of mutually exclusive options to choose from, we distort the whole of our Christianity, including the parts that we get right. And how can any smallness of vision Nurture grand churches, healthy churches. To quote Don Carson, damn all false antitheses to hell. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel, Don. <laughs> false antitheses is taking God's both and and turning it into our own either or. Damn all false antitheses to hell, for they generate false gods, they perpetuate idols, they twist and distort our souls, they launch the church into violent pendulum swings, whose oscillations succeed only in dividing brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would add, those false antitheses succeed in perpetuating and even reinforcing ill health in our churches and ourselves as pastors. So the remedy for our lack of vigor is not to dig ever deeper into just the one side, our side, of the two-sided glories of Christ. In other words, our ill health is not remedied by more intense efforts in the direction we're already going, but by a more radical reappraisal of the real weaknesses in the strengths we emphasize and the real strengths in the weaknesses we underemphasize. In his prophetic book, The Church Before the Watching World, Francis Schaeffer, who, after my dad, who was the greatest man I've ever known, hands down, the next most influential man in all my life was Francis Schaeffer. I only had one conversation with him. It lasted about 15 seconds. <laughs> On the campus of Wheaton College in the fall of 1968, he was there doing the lectures that eventually became... Uh, the book, Death in the City. And I'd just been lifting weights in the gym and I was converging onto the sidewalk to go back to Fisher Hall in my dorm room and he was walking along the sidewalk and we just came together and I said, how are you, Dr. Schaefer? And he said, I'm very tired. <laughs> End of conversation. <laughs> and now I get it. <laughs> 
Interesting, he said in his, uh, okay, in my mind, here's the Bible, and right under the Bible is a sermon that Francis Schaeffer preached entitled, The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way. It's the most important thing outside the Bible I've ever read. The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way in a book of sermons entitled, No Little People. He makes the point there that when we're serving, living, rejoicing, sacrificing in the fullness of the Holy Spirit's power, we still get tired. Fatigue and power are highly compatible in the ways of God. And we will wear ourselves out walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Well, would we want it any other way? I mean, guys, it's the fourth quarter. We're in the red zone. The divine coach has us on the play. We don't care what, on the field, we don't, we don't care what play he calls. Just, we're not on the bench. That's all that matters. Call a play, coach. We're all in. And we're not saving energy for the party after the game. We're going to lay it all down, and when the game ends, we're just going to crawl off the field. Happy, because we won. Okay, back to my manuscript. <laughs> Francis Schaeffer, The Church Before the Watching World. If we want this fullness and grandeur that Christ is to enter into ourselves and into our churches, here is what we must embrace. Schaeffer explains it. It's a lengthy quote. I apologize, but you'll love it. He said, one cannot explain the explosive power of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously. Now, in this particular passage, he's talking about the holiness of God and the love of God side by side. But his logic applies widely. They practiced the orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church, a community which the world could see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community. But the exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful and must be there. The heart of these principles is to show forth the love of God and the holiness of God simultaneously. If we show either of these without the other, we exhibit not the character but a caricature of God for the world to see. If we stress the love of God without the holiness of God, it turns out only to be compromise. But if we stress the holiness of God without the love of God, we practice something that is hard and lacks beauty. And it is important to show forth beauty before a lost world and a lost generation. All too often, young people have not been wrong in saying that the church is ugly. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are called upon to show a watching world and to our own young people that the church is something beautiful. Several years ago, I wrestled with the question of what was wrong with much of the church that stood for purity. He's talking about the crisis of his whole life in 1951 where he was part of a Bible-believing Presbyterian denomination that in the heyday of American fundamentalism, and I'm not using that word in a, in a disparaging way, he saw such 
uh, sort of an ugly lovelessness, staunch for, for pure doctrine, relationally harsh, that distress nearly convinced him he had to stop being a Christian. He was driven to the precipice of thinking, if that's Christianity, in conscience and in honesty, I must renounce Christianity. He really had to think this through. I came to the conclusion that in the flesh, we can stress purity without love, or we can stress love without purity, but that in the flesh, we cannot emphasize both simultaneously. In order to exhibit both simultaneously, we must look moment by moment to the work of Christ, to the work of the Holy Spirit. Spirituality begins to have real meaning in our moment by moment lives as we begin to exhibit simultaneously the holiness of God and the love of God. Then we're lifted up above our own personal biases, predispositions, and preferences. We are magnified. We are stretched. We become larger than ourselves. We start looking a little bit like Christ. And so do our churches. If Schaefer is right, and he is, then we pastors in our churches cannot get healthy again by tweaking this or that aspect of the ministry. We get healthy again by opening up to all that Christ is and especially those aspects of the biblical vision that have always struck us as perplexing and unhelpful. So let's get ourselves off our starvation diet of some facets of the glory of Christ. Let's ask ourselves if when we accepted Christ, we accepted all of Christ. Let's give ourselves permission to go where we never would have gone if we ourselves had designed the Christian faith. Here is how Paul describes our Christ in chapter 1 of Colossians. This is breathtaking. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, we could stop right there. What on earth does that mean? For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. He created invisible things. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Whoa! What is lacking in that Christ? What is superfluous in that Christ? What is optional in that Christ? And since that fullness is who he is and always will be, our part in all of this is not to imagine the better Christ we wish we had and then make up for the deficiencies of the Christ we do have, but to stretch our faith out to the full extent of the actual grandeur of our Christ. 
and to spend the rest of our lives joyously exploring through Scripture who He really is and bringing as many people with us as will come. That's how we get healthy again. It's not obviously a matter of our cleverness and packaging. It's not even a matter of our strategic planning, though that has its place. Getting healthy again is a matter of humility. It's a matter of us finally letting our Christ be as big and complex and multifaceted and scary as he really is without our diminishing him by chopping him up into parts and then choosing which parts we will emphasize and which we will downplay or even ignore. So the first step toward renewed vigor and health and vitality for every one of us and our churches is to ask this question. What is there about our actual Christ who is out there right now that we're oblivious to or maybe avoiding or refusing or maybe even denying? Whatever the answer to that question might be for us in our churches, that is where and why we are languishing and exhausted and fearful and unmotivated. And the remedy is not to sharpen yet further our clarity about what we do know of Christ, but humbly and cheerfully and expectantly to go find out the very points where we have never made much of him and discover more of his glory without leaving behind the glories he has already revealed to us. In the Revelation of John, the Bible describes our Lord as both a lion and a lamb. Jonathan Edwards, in his wonderful sermon, The Excellency of Jesus Christ, proposes this thesis, quote, There is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. That is so Edwardsian. There is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. In other words, his diverse excellencies are what we most admire about him. How he's most surprising and unlike us and counterintuitive. We admire him all the more because he is not simplistic and one-dimensional and predictable and containable. We rejoice that he is not like us but full of diverse glories. We don't edit him down or explain him away, but we play him up by letting him be himself to us. Now, guys, if we chart our course this way, it might put us at odds at times with other Christians that we cherish and are responsible to. Yeah, you know, there might be some in your denomination that don't like this. They, they never bought into this, and it might cost you. But it might also become the edge of revival pressing into your soul, your church, and your denomination. If our better future is not more of Christ, then what is it? Therefore, health-conducive pastoral ministry gets us asking this question. What parts of the both ends of the gospel are we clear about? What is there in the glory of Christ that we see with some clarity? And what is there in the glory of Christ that we might be blind to or even afraid of? Let's keep the former and embrace the latter. I want to propose four practical possible steps of follow-through. The seal on this bottle did not break when I opened that up. I wonder if the previous spoker, speaker drink, drank from this. And <laughs> Oh, that's too late. <laughs> Whatever. 
Number one, for your own soul's sake, read The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. It was the most life-giving book I read in 2016 when it was published. He tells the story, as you know, of the Marrow Controversy in 18th century Scotland and how that controversy helps us understand and embrace and experience the free offer of God's grace in the gospel. Christ received for all that he is as a whole, as a totality, cannot fail sinners. There is nothing about him we need to worry about or brace ourselves against or filter out. The grace of the whole Christ is both gracious and morally uplifting. In fact, the more gracious we know and feel him to be, the more uplifting he also proves to be. So our health lies not in compromising between his grace and his law, and meeting in the middle with grace that has a little law in it and law that has a little grace in it, our health lies in receiving his grace as the total grace of the whole Christ that turns sinners into saints. That book will help you. Thomas Chalmers, in The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, famously and wisely said, The freer the gospel, the more sanctifying the gospel. The more it is received as a doctrine of grace, the more will it be felt as a doctrine of godliness. This is one of the secrets of the Christian life. Retain a single shred or fragment of legality with the gospel, and, and we raise a topic of distrust between God and man. We would say anxiety. We take away from the power of the gospel to melt and to conciliate. For this purpose, the freer it is, the better it is. That very peculiarity which so many dread as the germ of antinomianism is, in fact, the germ of a new spirit and a new inclination against antinomianism. Along with the light of a free gospel does there enter the love of the gospel, which in proportion as we impair the freeness, we are sure to chase away. And never does the sinner find within himself so mighty a moral transformation as when under the belief that he is saved by grace, he feels constrained thereby to offer his heart a devoted thing and to deny ungodliness. I also recommend not only The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson, but also True Spirituality by Francis Schaeffer again, with the profound insights that he develops from his, the crisis of his life uh, in 1951, the, as I said, the ugly sickness he saw in his denomination almost made him feel duty-bound to oppose Christianity. But then, in his anguish, he began to see something new. He began to see the real-time relevance of the finished work of Christ on the cross for his ongoing present needs. The finality and sufficiency of Christ, not just for a new convert, but as an endless resource for the broken Christian, moment by moment, Schaefer's discovery of a glory in Christ he had never seen before broke upon him with life-giving power. It might help you. It sure has helped me. That's number one. Number two, in your public ministry, preach through whole books of the Bible, especially the books you've never dared to preach from. 
Give yourself permission deep within to lead your church on an adventure that no denominational headquarters can package for you, but that your Lord above can lead you into very fruitfully. Doing this takes courage, but the Lord will be with you. And as you preach through Joshua or Malachi or 2 Thessalonians, whatever, let each passage in that book, each passage along the way, speak with its own full force. Yes, of course, put every passage into the larger context of the biblical gospel. But don't mute the voice of that passage. Each passage is there to let more light from the glory of Christ into the darkness of our world and the semi-darkness of our churches. Don't turn every passage into a sermon on substitution and imputation and justification by faith alone. Unleash the Bible passage by passage, and your people will start coming into church every Sunday with eager anticipation. You all will start wondering, man, alive, what's coming next? That itself is a sign of health. Number three, as you lead your church forward, never stop affirming your church. Don't treat the past before you were there as failure. They will perceive that as you invalidating them. Remember, you are their friend. You're their head cheerleader. You're not their critic. You are their fellow pilgrim, and you're not their savior. Validate their past attainments that you didn't contribute to. Where the Lord has led them thus far is all of grace, all miraculous in nature, and wonderfully glorious. Remember that in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell upon Peter and the early church with breathtaking power and blessing, but it wasn't until Acts chapter 10 that Peter began to see the multi-ethnic implications of the gospel. God blessed and used a Jewish renewal movement that we now call the early church, even when they were still oblivious to gospel insights we now take for granted. And so it is with your church. And as you and your church journey forward, guided by whole books of the Bible, all of you can celebrate the new themes you're discovering together, wonderful new insights marked by such grandeur as that of Christ himself, so that those new discoveries become part, new part of your church's story and heritage making your church stronger and more convincing for the future. Present new insights not as competing truths or even as corrective truths, but as enhancing truths. Not as a new, gener a new direction, but as a next step, enriching still further what the Lord has already given your church. Acts 10 didn't invalidate Acts 2. It built upon Acts 2. It also helps as you lead your church along to quote the creeds. If your church planting, especially, how is your city going to know your new church is not a cult? Use the historic creeds generously. Show what you identify with. Show it joyously, repeatedly. Use the historic creeds, the confessions, the authors that define your church's heritage. But be careful not to replace 
One false dichotomy with a new opposite false dichotomy. Pendulum swings do not build health. And if your church's past has been imperfect, your church's future will also be imperfect, even after you've given them your best. Your privilege now is just to help them grow more toward the display of the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What an incredible privilege. Can you believe the Lord lets us do this? I'm just lucky to have a job. I love being a pastor. I just adore it. I didn't always feel that way. I feel that way now. I am so thankful to the Lord. I feel there was a time when I, it seemed to me, that honesty demanded that I ask a question I'd never asked before. Hmm. Look at this bombed-out rubble called my life. It looks like Berlin in 1945. Maybe I've been wrong all my life. Maybe the truth of my existence is God hates my guts. That would explain everything. Eventually, I figured out I was right the first time. God does love me. In fact, now, I feel so attended to by God. I feel so um, thought about. I, I feel spoiled. And now I get to pastor this wonderful church in Nashville. Guys, when we planted Emmanuel Church, if I didn't have it, but if I had had the psychological wherewithal to mastermind this great church for the future, big, brilliant, strategic plan, if I had been able to do that, and then if we had executed that plan, the church that we would have ended up with would be vastly inferior to the church which in fact exists there now. I don't know how we got there. The, the early members, the founding members say, as I say, we were there, we watched it, we participated in it, but we can't explain it. We don't know how this happened. How did this happen? Except a friend of mine who wasn't in the original core group said, he said to me, Ray, my impression of you guys, that the charter members core group, is that y'all were so uh, sort of injured and exhausted and discouraged at the beginning. You didn't even have the emotional energy for selfish agendas. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he said, well, I think God looked at that and he said, well, there's a church I can use. <laughs> How could it be otherwise? Okay, fourth point. And final point. Spread a sense of cheerful adventure by showing your people that you are growing. One of the great Bible teachers of my dad's generation, he was a founding member of the faculty of Fuller Theological Seminary in 1948, Wilbur Smith, was famous for saying whenever he preached, 
And here is something I discovered in this passage during my preparation this week that I'd never seen before. I never heard Wilbur Smith preach or teach one time when he didn't say that. And when he let us in on these discoveries, this journey he was on, we felt pulled in. No one gets healthy by recycling the unbalanced diet that got them unhealthy in the first place. But the gentle enthusiasm of expectancy will appeal to people whose hearts are open as your heart remains the most open. Sadly, the newness in Christ that you and others will relish might upset a few people. But you will win over more people by setting a wise pace of discovery. My dad used to say about church leaders, one step ahead, you're a leader. Two steps ahead, you're a visionary. Three steps ahead, you're a martyr. <laughs> so set a trajectory of discovery and expectancy and adventure. And yes, be sure to satisfy that expectation. But also set a pace that even strugglers can follow with you. The Bible says of our Lord, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. If young moms can follow you cheerfully, you're doing it right. Thanks, guys. God bless you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.